really how can, how can I help you? help you? I think we all enjoyed yesterday our keynote speaker who really was on target about the importance of bringing relationships into the workplace. And I really think that that extends into our volunteer programs too because aren't they also an extension of our workplace? I mean, isn't that where a lot of our work really gets done? Or is it really where all of our work gets done? As I was preparing for this presentation, I went around to a lot of my colleagues in the area and I asked them for their thoughts and ideas on volunteers and asked for some tips from them and what do they want to share. One of my friends came back to me and said, you know what, this is what I think we should do with our volunteers. I think at the beginning of the year, we should take all of our volunteers and lock them in a closet and let them out at the end of the year when we're done. <laughs> I think a lot of us feel that way at times about our volunteers and our volunteer programs. But the fact of the matter is, a volunteer program that works well adds a lot of value to our program. They not only raise our dollars and our participation, but they really build a stronger community. So what Bob and I would like to do today is to give you a lot of examples from a lot of different types of schools. We're going to show you independent school, colleges, universities, foreign schools. We're going to give you lots of examples from a lot of different places. Not everything works exactly in our shops, but hopefully we can give you a little piece of something that you can take home and somehow adapt Program. Maybe just a little nugget of something that you can translate. So, you know, what I always learned many years ago was that CASE really stands for copy and steal everything. So hopefully we'll give you a little something. Sounds really good. Um, one way to think of the two of us in this presentation is you have the practitioner and you have the pollinating bee, uh, who just gets around and sees uh, Anna giving at a lot of places. It's been a remarkable year. Um, uh, I was in Hong Kong just before Christmas speaking to a group of people there wondering if they understood anything I was saying. And uh, the annual giving is, is starting to sweep the globe. Here's the annual giving uh, chairperson uh, from Brussels, Belgium, asking you to join her uh, with your gift to the parent fund at the International School of Brussels. Over at the American School in Japan, they're now championing the cause for annual giving uh, over in Asia. Down under in Australia, the University of Sydney, they're saying, help more Australians to shape the world with your gift uh, to the annual fund at the University of Sydney. And phonathons, if you haven't been keeping score, here's the phonathon at the University of Newcastle in uh, the UK. Here's the phonathon over at the National University of Singapore. And here's the phonathon at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. So you can debate whether that's a sign of progress or not, but phonathons itself are sweeping the world. Uh, but the one thing, as Leslie said, that, that continues to bedevil a lot of us annual giving staff people, uh, regardless of where in the world you're talking about, is this uh, handling of volunteers. And how do we get volunteers? Should we be trying to get volunteers anymore? Uh, what's the right way to think about volunteers? So we're here to uh, make our case that uh, volunteer is not dead. Uh, but in fact, there's some clever new ways to engage volunteers, work with volunteers, and we're gonna share a little bit of the best and the brightest that we've seen uh, in our running around. Um, first of all, uh, Leslie, we should probably just get some of these issues on the table of some of the excuses that we enjoy making these days uh, about volunteers and why we shouldn't use volunteers anymore. And excuses? No excuses. Sorry, rationalizations. Excuses. Uh, as you look at this list, some of you may have your favorite uh, reason for using volunteers less or uh, thinking about alternatives to volunteers. You can pick out the one that's your favorite. Uh, people have greater time commitments today than ever before. I, I hear that a lot. Uh, but at the same time, I read news that we're watching more television than ever before. I don't know how to balance those things out. Uh, people don't come to meetings anymore. There's probably some truth to that. Any of you who are in big metropolitan areas, 
uh, probably know how frustrating it is for your volunteers to spend three hours to try and get across town to a one-hour meeting at your uh, institution. Uh, the younger generation doesn't care, or they're too distracted. Uh, the MTV people, it's too hard to get their attention. Uh, or that they somehow don't care about our institutions as much as the older generations. I'm not sure that that's true, but I hear that uh, a lot in the places that I wander around. When they want to volunteer, anybody hear this one? They want to do the things we did 20 years ago. Uh, can't we get the guys together like we used to and have that spaghetti bowl dinner and we'll all hit the phones and we'll just take care of this. Anybody still live with that? Is that good news or bad news that we have uh, these older people, and I'm generalizing, but people who want us to use methods that may not be the smartest uh, way of, of using people's time? What do we do in that kind of situation? We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and last, it's easier and cheaper for us to do it ourselves. I, I heard that sentiment voice just in this very conference. And uh, you know, I think part of the answer to that, and you might have another opinion on this, is what are the goals for using volunteers? Are, is it strictly a labor pool? Um, are there other outcomes uh, that uh, we should be aspiring to with the work of volunteers? So we want to talk about that also. Okay, Leslie and I are going to divide up uh, sort of our argument in defense of volunteers. Why we should not put them in the closet and lock them up for the year, uh, but why they can still serve an ongoing valuable role in the program. And here's my short list and Melissa land hers. Um, the one thing that I think we all understand is that they provide help. Uh, a lot of you come from two small shops and are trying to get uh, everything on your plate finished just to begin with, much less think about uh, other things that we'd like to get to we can't. So volunteers, first and foremost, are a labor pool, right? And if I can get somebody competent to take care of work that I don't have to think about myself, then that's a good day uh, for my institution. So we understand that is value. Other things that don't get talked about as much, though, I think is the role that volunteers provide for advocacy uh, for your institution. I've said for a long time that I think peers change the game in annual giving. And, and too often, people look at uh, the annual giving director and they say, well, that's their job to ask for my annual fund gift, or it's the headmaster's job, or, or it's a staff job. I think when somebody just like one of your uh, parents or alumni stands up and says, I'm doing this, I'm making this commitment, and you all should too, I think that's a very different dynamic than when it's us always sort of pleading our case. So um, I don't think it gets said often enough that volunteers provide a very valuable role in being the champions for what we're doing in many ways better than we can be. Beyond that, I think volunteers provide uh, context and culture. This, this may sound odd, but I really think uh, at a lot of the places I visit, uh, I hear that it's easier to get volunteers once you already have volunteers. It's easy to point to a tradition and a culture uh, and history, and, and this is just what you do as a parent at our school or a graduate at our school. So one of the values of having volunteers is that, that then that uh, becomes the culture and becomes the tradition of the institution. And volunteers demonstrate they have a strong affinity for the school. We'll talk a little bit later about the usefulness that volunteers uh, offer in terms of the fact that they're raising their hand and they're demonstrating just how strongly they feel for your institution. And I don't think uh, we often pay as much attention to that as we ought to. Um, data mining becomes a big buzzword in development in general and in giving in particular these days. You know, the people who are raising their hands saying they want to volunteer are a simple form of data mining in terms of their expressing their willingness to make that significant statement. And are we paying attention to them just from a prospect research point of view at our institution? Go ahead, Leslie, pile on. And also in defense for volunteers, and building right on what, what Bob was saying, is we all learned in Development 101 that peer-to-peer -peer solicitation is the most effective 
certain layer of being genuine that that peer can bring to the table when they talk to somebody. They understand it on a completely different reason and, and leveling. So when that parent talks to another parent, they understand how those classroom resources are affecting their child. And really, I mean, aren't our children the center of the universe? It all is about them. Or an alum can speak passionately to another alum because like we heard from our keynote speaker yesterday, you know, they believe that where they were able to go in life came from the foundation that they received in our schools. That's a passionate message from somebody who went through it. And you know, like Bob said, we're often viewed, no matter how passionate we are and how much we love our school, as the hired gun to raise money. It's our job to know the, the, the statistics and why we should give and all those things. But the passion, that, that argument, that comes from the volunteer. And in addition to that, that passion, any personal face-to-face -face solicitation, whether it's that peer-to-peer -peer or that staff-to-prospect um, kind of contact, that allows that two-way conversation. And that's so important because we miss that in a lot of our other programs, like our direct mail program, where you can only have a one-way conversation. <laughs> in a year like this, where there are so many different reasons not to give, and some of them are really simple and easy to overcome, and some of them are actually non-issues, really. But we can't really address those conversations or, or those issues or those objections unless we can sit down and talk to them, to know what their objection is. And we can say, don't worry about this, or this is okay, or I'm doing it also, it's all right. But that peer, that, that two-way conversation, um, that can accomplish that. But we all know in our days, especially you know, as, as the staff person, we have 900 other things to do. We can't personally sit down in front of every single constituent and say, what's standing between you and giving it, and how can I make you feel that your gift is having an impact? But the more volunteers you have, the more personal contacts you can have. You're building an, an entire network and a community, and one that's working for you. That's a lot of value to your program. And then it also, excuse me, frees up that time where you can do those other things that you need to do, because we have so many other things on your plate. So if you came here hoping to find the final arguments for discontinuing some <laughs> volunteers in your program, we wanted to show you a little bit about where we're coming from. Uh, and all the examples we show from here on out may require some work, may require some expense, may require some innovation, but at the end of the day, these are the things that we think these people have to offer us still. We think that some upfront time with volunteers, the time that we've put into our volunteers, really can pay off in huge dividends. They're worth the time. If that program's functioning well, it pays back to the program in many ways. There's really you know, no defense for all our excuses and sometimes how we treat our volunteers. We kind of take them for granted and sometimes I understand why volunteers don't want to volunteer. We use, them, we use their time often in really inefficient ways because it's the mindset that we get in our office because we too fall into that trap that some of those older alums do. We do things because we do things, not because this is going to be the easiest way for our volunteers to get the work done. Um, we don't always match the best talents or needs with the, with the right people. Um, there are some people who are very passionate about the school, but maybe being a solicitor isn't the right place for them to be involved, but maybe they can help with a web project or do some other things. We need to really be aware of what our volunteers can offer to make sure that we're putting them in the right roles. We want to match them because then they'll be more effective also and they'll get more done and we can accomplish more in our office. We tend to really overwork our volunteers and, and treat them um, like labor in our office and run them really ragged.
of the day, they still look to school. Um, and at the same time, we often underestimate that love for the school. That's why they're there doing it. We don't want to abuse that love for the institution. Maybe there's even a way that we can grow their involvement in the institution versus pegging them in this one role that we're going to keep them in for 15 years. And you know, they're, they're talking to each other. And, and there's a lot of buzz at the conference. And all the conferences these days are you know, these networks that are out there, Facebook, and, and how fast you know, messages travel. Well, they are communications networks. They're, they're a great group to involve and get messages out there. So how do we find these great volunteers? What's the recipe for finding those good volunteers who are going to do all this great work for us? Well, the first place we look, and we all know this, is at our consistent donors, because they are already passionate about the school. They understand the importance of giving because they're in the habit of doing it themselves already. It's a great first step. Now, there are a lot of other things we need to think about in addition to being a consistent donor. If we want to really match the talents and, and the positions to the people, because maybe somebody is comfortable as a consistent donor but isn't necessarily comfortable preparing the message. But it's a great first place because that first obstacle has already been cleared. They understand giving because they give. So then the next part is who's already involved in the school because they're passionate about the school too if they're already involved. That's another great person to look at. Who, when you walk around campus, do you always see? What parent is it that always seems to be walking around campus? They love the school, obviously. They're always there. What alum is it that you seem to see at every alumni event? Surely there's somebody, and you see the RSVP list for the event, and you're like, oh, of course Joe's going to be there. Well, Joe's raising his hand. He's trying to say he's really interested in school. Maybe there's a way that we can match his talents and be a good volunteer. Much like Bob said, volunteers kind of grow to breed volunteers. So, you know, once you have some good volunteers, I really recommend going to good volunteers for the referrals. They know what the job is. They've been doing it. Hopefully they've been having a good experience. They know their peers. They know who they talk to, who they've had good conversations with. They're good referrals to get new volunteers also. Uh, and use them for that. Don't just use them for the solicitation. What are the other ways that you can Maybe they can actually help recruit that volunteer for you. Or if they're not going to help recruit, maybe you can at least use their name to help recruit the next volunteer. Now, hey, I talked to Sue mentioned that you might be interested in this volunteer position. So that's a very helpful way. Volunteers grow volunteers. And this was kind of an aha moment we had at Sidwell Friends School. Um, and Madeline Stewart, for, who's our Associate Director of Annual Giving, had this great idea. We were completely overlooking um, people who were rolling off positions. So we started to look at who was coming off positions in the parent association who were officers. They love the school, they've been involved, they know how to be a volunteer, and now all of a sudden they have some time to leave because they're not involved in this other time-consuming position. Maybe a great person to go to and ask to be a volunteer. So we started going to them and asking them to be a volunteer. There are other positions. Who's rolling off the board and now has time? They also have a great understanding of the school. Um, who's coming off the Alumni Association? Who was a great reunion volunteer and now there's four more years to fill and maybe they can step up and be a great volunteer. So who's rolling off who might have some time and still love the school? And our other aha moment that, that we had was we were looking at our volunteers and we realized we weren't being respectful of time limits and term limits on these people. We were really overworking so we thought, okay, where are we going to find the new people? We're kind of going through our list. 
started taking notes on who the easy, great conversations were with, with those new parents. So when the volunteer called up that new parent, and that new parent said, oh, Joey's having a great experience at Sidwell Friends School. Of course we want to give you the annual fund. We understand how important that is. We want to make sure that we're a part of this too. We started taking notes on that. So the next year we could go back to those people and say, you know what? You were so great, we really appreciate it. We're glad you had a wonderful first year and we really appreciate that you understood how important this the annual fund was. Would you like to help us this coming year and be a part of that? We found some great new volunteers. One of the things we wanted to uh, elaborate on a little bit more was the idea of respecting people's time. And what I see increasingly these days at some of the places I visit, the institutions with the longest, most established annual giving tradition and maybe with the, uh, the history of involving the most volunteers are sometimes the places that are struggling the most these days because they're using sort of a playbook, if you will, that was more relevant 10 or 15 or 25 or 30 years ago, you know, where everybody would come to meetings and everybody would get trained and everybody would get binders and, um, you know, it worked really well uh, for a long time. And yet a lot of those places are stubbing their toes now um, because methods are changing and, expectations are changing and I think um, you're at risk if people decide that you're using their time in a dumb way and so how do we think about uh, what that means for Anchorage program? I have a game that you all can play uh, for the rest of this uh, presentation. Um, one of us is from Chicago and can't stop talking about Barack Obama uh, all day long. Uh, the other one of us really would prefer to avoid talking about Barack Obama <laughs> and his children and organic oven-baked french fries uh, on the menu in the cafeteria. See if you can figure out uh, which one is which. Barack Obama, uh, in the campaign, <laughs> uh, did some, you know, you've probably already had sessions just in this conference talking about the kinds of things that he did that were really revolutionary and really uh, are gonna be a model for how people do elections going forward. I had two friends uh, in Chicago, well, I guess that's a little revealing, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, and they they were passionate about Barack Obama. They, they wanted to volunteer and get involved on behalf of Barack Obama. The problem was that Illinois was not a swing state uh, in the election. So they could, they could sit in their living room and go online and log into BarackObama.com and get phone numbers of people living in North Carolina that they could call and ask to be a supporter. Do they need a ride to the poll? Were they needing? Barack Obama, and then the, the cell phone bill they, they rang up was another contribution they made uh, to Barack Obama's campaign. You know, it's that kind of uh, thinking that I think is really interesting in terms of what we do. I don't buy the argument that people somehow don't care as much about our institutions as they used to. But if somebody says, I gotta fight two hours of traffic to get across town to sit in a phonathon uh, bank where we're only gonna be able to call for an hour, that just doesn't seem like the best use of my time. It's not that I don't care. It's just that isn't there a smarter way that we could be doing this? So uh, we'll come back to my friend Barack Obama a couple times uh, in this session. But in general, um, there are a lot of interesting tools that he used, one of which was understanding that I don't need to require interested people to really leave their house if they want to make uh, an effort and want to do something on behalf of uh, this campaign. So at Sidwell Friends School, our parents fund is called the Fair Share Fund. And in our Quaker tradition, we really believe that uh, parents in particular should give what is to be a part, everybody should be a part of the community. Giving to the community is being part of the community, and everybody should give what their fair share is, whether it's $100, $1,000, $1,000, 
three years ago, we were really behind the parents' education market. We just revived the year. It just, we just, you know, you just have those years and everything's off. We were getting the end of the year, and we just weren't able to correct ourselves and get back on track, and we were struggling. And the staff person who was overseeing our fair share fund and trying to all the volunteers, um, you know, the closer we got to the end of the year, the further control we got, she just kept pushing the volunteers harder and harder and harder and do more and more and more. And you know, the more and more they heard from us that you have to do your work, your work's not done, we're so far behind. Um, they want to shut down. You know? They stopped answering some phone calls, they stopped replying to emails. Um, it was getting to be um, a hard, frustrating situation to be in. The volunteers who weren't getting their work done before, we were not anymore, and then our really good volunteers who actually did do their work, um, they were then given all of the work from the volunteers who didn't do their work, so then we completely overworked and abused their time by saying, okay, now your peers didn't do their work, so can you do their homework for them? And um, everything, it just started to shut down. We thought maybe if, if I called some of the volunteers because they didn't know me as much, and if they thought I was the director of annual giving this time, maybe I should respond. They weren't responding to anybody. They were tired, they were overworked, we'd abused their love, we'd abused their time. So at the end of the year, down in participation, little beaten up over it, we thought, you know what, this, this was really, this was a rough year. So then, the next year, we have a, a wonderful new staff person who's overseeing our fair share of volunteer. Um, I will often sing the praises of the person who oversees it and will reference her often because she's done a great job. Um, but she saw that what we really did was we used our volunteers. We both recognized this. And the first task that we had to do was rebuild a lot of these relationships, get everybody motivated again. And so, obviously, feeding volunteers doesn't work. And was learned the hard way. So uh, we had to take the next approach, which seemed to make sense, and, and I can't believe we didn't do it the first time. You know, we have to highlight successes and celebrate what's done right on a regular basis. You have to find a positive way to get messages out. You can say what you can say anything you want. You can even say something that's negative, but you can put a positive spin on it, and it goes a really long way. Alan sends out these great email progress reports to her volunteers on a regular basis, and they are the most uplifting, wonderful, encouraging emails. I love getting them also because I'm CC'd on them. I want to get up and cheer. She's got a great way of saying. You're doing a good job, guys. We're, we're not there yet, but, but you're making progress. Way to go. Here's somebody who did good, and kudos to so-and-so for, for reaching their goal. And she really, really makes them feel good about what they're doing, which is what we want to do, because they're there, because they love our institution. Even more importantly, we found a way to encourage people to do their work by not saying, your work's not done. Get back on the phone and make those calls, but instead by saying, how can I help you? I noticed you're behind. What can we do to help this workload? And that goes a long way. It's just changing the attitude of how you're doing it. You know, it, they're there again because they love it. But after a while, we have to make sure that we're, we're not abusing that. And again, say anything you want. Don't hide negative things. We have to be honest with our volunteers. But find a positive way to say it. So they leave the room or they close the email and they think, okay, we can rally. You can do this. Once they're all excited to do that, make sure that you've provided them the strong tools that they need to go out and do their work. So once they're all excited to go out and do that, do they have what they need to make a successful solicitation? And that's something else that we kind of reviewed, kind of overhauled, and looked at what can we give our volunteers to make sure that 
they have what they need so that they can go out. They have the passion, they have the connection, they understand the importance. They know really how to go and make that call and, and, and complete the circle of the work that we're asking them to do. And we have some tools and some examples of tools that they use and other schools use as we go through a little further that we'll show you. So I'm uh, sitting on my plane yesterday, well, in the plane actually, and, uh, and I flew Southwest Airlines, and they're de-icing the wings of my plane. And so I'm reading the Southwest magazine, and one of the little factoids that was in there was that uh, the first radio commercial was 10 minutes long. And we all get, the room gasps, but back when radio was new, people were happy to watch anything. My mom and dad, when they watched TV, they watched the test pattern on the TV because it was so fascinating that it was right in the middle of their house. So radio was the same evolution. There was a point where it was a novelty, and then you know, eventually the, the duration of commercials that we would tolerate got shorter and shorter and shorter. I think phone con has been a similar thing. There was a period at a lot of our institutions where phone con was, oh, we could call everybody. We, 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 could, we could have a conversation with every one of our graduates. How cool would that be? And you know, there's the, Varying degrees, that feeling of coolness has eased over the years, and a lot of us now probably look at it as much as drudgery, as much as a real cool thing. But there's been an evolution uh, for the phone call, which brings me to my favorite topic, Barack Obama. <laughs> and, uh, and you all probably followed how he used text messaging uh, to such great effect uh, in his campaign. If, if uh, you want to get the inside scoop on uh, what's going on in the Obama campaign, if you want to hear first. Who his vice presidential running mate is going to be? Uh, sign up to get text messages from Barack Obama uh, straight to your phone, so that you're in the in the loop. You're the insider of what's going on with the Obama campaign. And they got so much publicity off of this; it was fabulous. Seventeen magazine. Look at this girl with a crush on Barack Obama. Be the first to know Barack's VP. Um, this is the first time a campaign will ever do this. Let's make history. Uh, who do you think Barack Obama should pick for his running mate? Um, uh, just text and Barack will send you his VP pick. And when your friends ask who just texted you, you can say, oh, it's just Barack. <laughs> it doesn't get much cooler than that. It's a new generation of coolness, right? So it's a, it's a, a tongue-in-cheek way to just remind us that you know we're, we're, that evolution is always going on. And uh, if you haven't thought about you know, anybody, by the way, Obama revolutionized using text emails so significantly that he lent his text email apparatus to the hurricane uh, relief people when uh, Gustav came through New Orleans. They used his uh, list of um, cell phone people to get out the word if he wanted to support Hurricane Gustav. No other not-for-profit had thought about how to do that, but the Obama people were already uh, a block down the road in thinking about it. Um, it's a program called There's a program called Twitter. Anyone using Twitter in their for Some people nod their heads. Um, is it just from a like a parent uh, announcement point of view? Anybody using it in fundraising yet? Twitter, for those of you who don't know, which more or less includes me, is sort of what the Obama people were using. It's a way that you can load in cell phones and then send out messages uh, to people. And the messages that go out are called tweets. And this is completely free to sign up for. And I just sit there saying, okay, so. Uh, Bob, what are you trying to get me to believe? That someday we're all going to be conducting tweet-a-thons <laughs> in the interview program? Well, as a matter of fact, here's the hard kids tweet-a-thon. Uh, join, 
the tweet-a-thon by giving us your phone number, and then for a day, they send out announcements. Don't forget to support uh, the Hard Kids program by uh, uh, making your gift today from the tweet-a-thon program. Um, and I can see a lot of applications for this one. Volunteers, congratulations, we just got uh, a record gift for your class, or don't forget, we've only got uh, two more days before the kids go ahead. That's exactly it. You can make up your own deadline, right? And you know, if we don't get if we don't get four more donors before the Elton John concert comes on at the top of the hour, we won't hit our goal. It's a completely made up goal, right? So, um, you know, if somebody uses this in their program, I guarantee you you'll see a bounce in your fundraising just because people think it's cool, right? And people are going to say, "Oh, this is the same thing my kids are using, and now we're using it as volunteers." Uh, in our school. So I'm being glib about this, but it, it goes back to sometimes we say, oh, phone thons are dead, or uh, uh, you know, direct mail is dead. You know, the, the, the people are moving and they're communicating, and we're going to talk about Facebook and MySpace and those kinds of things. We have some responsibility to keep up with how these people are communicating. And there's a coolness to this that you can benefit from. You know, flash videos now seem a little bit old fashioned. When those first came out years ago, you didn't want to be the one school that didn't have a flash appeal video, right? We actually have one because, you know, Citadel Friends has a sexy one, and we're going to let them come in give you a little cool, right? So, uh, anyway, the one point about uh, respect of their color. Oh, and this is um, the Tweetathon. This is how they connected all the dots. You then went to this website, and you just clicked on one of these buttons, and notice these are from recurring donors, not even just one-time gifts. I wonder if we've gotten to a point where we've oversold annual giving, and it's part of what we're trying to accomplish to be to uh, acquire sustaining donors uh, to institution. That's become a much more simplified process as well. This was one more thing about uh, Obama, and I think I'm going to shut up about him for this presentation. But you know, for a, a, an Obama volunteer, you could go into your precinct online and you could see all the people who were definite yes Obama voters, the people who uh, felt good about it but still hadn't made up their mind. The people who are completely undecided, this dark uh, uh, dark Vader area was the, the, the John McCain section, I guess, of people who weren't going to vote for our candidate in the precinct. Um, I'm waiting for somebody to offer this kind of technology in a way that we can all take advantage of. Because to me, this is a reunion. This is a parent appeal. Um, this is a way for a volunteer to get sort of excited about specifically what they could do to help us make a difference. And so. Take a look at how some of these things were pioneered in this election. I think it's really interesting, given a lot of the same goals and the same challenges that we have uh, in our program. And so we talked a little bit before about keeping the workload reasonable um, for everybody and kind of doing things the same way because we've always done them that way. Well, there are some schools who are moving away from these systems, and I'm going to highlight one of them. That's St. Albans School, which is also down the road from us in D.C. And some of you may already be doing what, what they're doing. I think this is pretty neat. A lot of us. How many of you, Sidwell Friends has this, the class agent system in their alumni program, and what we do is we have one to two class agents for every class, and they're responsible for contacting everybody in their class and getting them to give, and you have the participation pool for that class. It's a great theory, you've got that peer-to-peer, -peer, remember our class, and, and yay. But when you look at the workload to it, you really start to think about how much we're asking our volunteers to do. We graduate over 100 students per, per senior year. So if you have one or two class agents for that class, you're asking them to make 50 to 100 contacts and keep on those people until they give at the end of the year. That's really a lot of work. I mean, think about some of our portfolios that we do in our work out 
one big project, you put it in the corner of your desk and you say, oh, big project, I'm gonna get to it later, I'll do it later. And instead of making some of it or half of it getting done, then you end up getting none of it done. And then this is where we start to see our volunteer programs kind of start to implode where we keep saying, well, maybe it's what to do. So what St. Albans decided to do is they restructured that whole class agent system into um, a decade system to reduce the workload on volunteers who, again, love school, therefore raise their hands and I want to be involved. So the decade system that they changed to, instead of having that one class agent per year, they have one to two decade chairs who are responsible for those 10 years. The responsibility of a decade chair is to recruit, manage, solicit 10 to 15 people in that decade. Now, they don't have to necessarily have representatives for <coughs> every class in that decade. They might have four for the class of 86 and one or none for the class of 81, but they've got the whole decade represented fairly evenly in that group. That decade chair, as I said, is responsible for the management part, which is key to this. They send out a lot of the communications, the encouragement that we can do that. That's part of what, what takes some of the workload off this and makes it encouraging is they're caring to do the work from the peers. And the people that they've recruited, they're, they're calling them agents. They're not really sure what to call them right now, so they're calling them agents. So then the responsibility of the agent that they've recruited within the decade is they need to make seven to 10 contacts across that, which is a whole lot better than doing 50 to 100. And again, they also looked at the best way to match volunteers and prospects it might be that my best friend is in the class of 88. So instead of having me call just my class, I can call my best friend who's in class of 88. That's gonna be a stronger, better contact anyway. I'm gonna be more likely to pick up the phone because I wanna talk to them. And more work's getting done because I'm not confining the volunteers to the old system of you have to call your classmates and this many of them. And they're starting to see some things really get done. Now, why is it that this is really working for St. Albans School? Well, they've got really good volunteer leadership at the top. And you know, part of this idea even came from their annual fund chair who wanted to find a way to, to re-energize the volunteer program. He's invested in it, he wants it to work. He's in contact with the other volunteers, kind of giving them a role model as how it is they can manage their volunteers. Um, and you know, it's that, con that contact volunteer to volunteer. I'm getting my work done done and it's working for them. Now that doesn't mean that there's not any staff management to this because we can't just let our volunteers go out there all by themselves. I think all of us would get a little nervous about that too. Things wouldn't quite get done as, as we need them to get done. So there's still a staff management angle to this. And the staff is there for all the volunteers and they're the ones who send out the monthly updates on your prospects. So every month, every volunteer in the system still gets a contact from the the office they're still there with that conversation and staying close with them but really the motivating of them and, and that encouragement is coming from the peers. We want to talk for a minute about this issue of uh, sort of old guard volunteers you might say who like doing things the way they remember doing them the way that they've always done them and the opportunities that we're trying to sketch out here to sort of keep uh, the program moving. And you'll find that we're going to conveniently straddle the fence on this question, but uh, we wanted to talk about it uh, for just a minute. One of my favorite corporate analogies as it relates to annual giving is the poor folks at Kodak. And uh, if any of you have followed Kodak for the last couple of years, when digital photography first started to become 
the, the next cool thing. Um, Kodak made a really big mistake. They said, well, you know what? That's not what we do. We're all about paper film developing, and you and I taking our film down to the photo photo or the drugstore, and then getting paper uh, prints back. And Hewlett Packard and uh, a bunch of other companies, after they picked their, their mouths up off the floor, said, well, if Kodak's not going to do that, we're going to do it. And uh, if you followed the headlines the last couple of years, uh, the poor folks in Rochester, New York, have lost a lot of jobs at the headquarters of Kodak. And uh, Kodak has now announced they're discontinuing future research on paper film development. Um, if you haven't seen uh, the other real shocking headline, Polaroid has quit the Polaroid business. <laughs> and I don't, if you're of a certain age, I can remember the very first Polaroid I was ever in. And we all crowded around the picture to see us appear in the Polaroid. Now you can have Polaroids, I haven't making Polaroids anymore. So uh, it's another long-winded Bob analogy. We're talking about the responsibility that we sort of have for keeping up with things. The reason I talk about this is the University of Rochester is right downriver from Kodak on the Genesee River. And the place was all but built with money from the Eastman Kodak uh, people about 100 years ago. And they understood what Kodak didn't. And so a couple years ago, when they're doing their phonophon, like everybody does their phonophon, right before, uh, right after a student got a pledge, and right before they hung up with the graduate, they said, can we send you an email confirmation of your pledge? Which opened up a whole new window of communication with those graduates. And it, it, was, it was an expression of an understanding that we can't live in a phonophon world necessarily forever. And, and you know, I'm all for it. A lot of you run great phonophones, and I'm all for it. You, you know the reality that some people just don't pick up the phone when anybody calls anymore. A lot of people just don't even have a home phone anymore. And so what are we thinking about now uh, in terms of how to deal with that situation? Okay, having, st having staked that out, uh, what do we do about these people who love your phonophone and want to stay involved or do whatever uh, they've been doing uh, for a while? And I was over in uh, Hong Kong, and I had the staff of the Chinese International School tell me that parents love their on-campus phonophon because it gets them away from everything else they're thinking about, and it's just time that they can come and, and not have to worry about anything else. They can concentrate on helping out the school and helping out the phonophon. Well, you were going to add. Yeah, we, we actually seen the exact same thing at Sybil Friends School, and again, it was making sure that we were listening to our volunteers that we picked up on this. Our alumni were really sending the message to us by not showing up that they weren't interested in the on-campus phonophones anymore. They were requesting, they were asking us, let's try and just do it from home, send them the cards. They're spread out across the country anyway. This was what our phonophone program was kind of moving towards. It was, it was getting weaker, it was kind of dying out. But our parents, on the other hand, they were really enjoying the phonophones because they said just what Bob said, they, you know, there's so much going on. I need to carve out two hours to give to you so that I can actually sit down and make these calls. I want to make these calls, just not finding it in my time where I can sit down to do it. And because Madeline has this great relationship with the volunteers, they would call her up and say, look, you know, how, how can I overcome this? And so we started doing these very informal phonophones where she'd say, you know what, I'll stay late for a couple hours on Thursday night. Can you come in and, and, and come in for two hours? And that's what they would do, informal. Not old-fashioned phonophones that we think of, where we order the big meal and get the house filled with all the phones, you know, being used. But it's two, three parents who might come in for two hours, run in, make their calls, run back out. They just needed that time set aside for them to do it. Madeline also used it as a great opportunity to kind of follow up with some of the volunteers who she noticed weren't doing their calls and saying, no, 
Joe's coming in to make some calls. If you want, I'll be here. If you'd like to come make some calls. And we found this was really effective. So we still have the traditional phone zones. We do a couple a year. Um, but really, more and more, our parents are asking for these informal phone on the fly phone zones. So they want to feel. <coughs> Anybody deal with a population that uh, really might want to share um, with a, an older group of volunteers who have uh, in their heads a certain way that we go about fundraising and, and, you know, part of why we brought this up is to make the point that I think you create your own culture. No way to say that might be you created your own monster with some of these people, but that's something I think we need respected. And the annual giving is, about, is as much about teaching habits uh, as it is just trying to uh, raise money from one year to the next. Yeah. Can you address changing the culture without alienating people who don't your friends? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. She, she said another way, how do you change the culture without alienating people who help bring you to where you are. Uh, what was I answer one question? I think it's a slow process. I think we slowly start to introduce new ideas to them and start to give them some options. I think people kind of slowly start to realize, oh, that might actually work. It's not an overnight process. And I think when we try to change things really drastically, really quickly, it's when we alienate people. But slowly starting to offer additional things. I mean, as much as I say our alumni volunteers are the dying breed we all have a situation where I had that cute class of 49 gentlemen, and he always likes to come in every time I offer the phone is on. And pretty much for him and a couple of his peers, I would never completely get rid of it um, because he's just never going to adapt to taking calls from his students. Yeah, that's that. I don't think he owns a cell phone. He wouldn't be interested in doing anything. You know that that wasn't the more traditional man. I think at some point it does cause us to spread ourselves to some extent, but if we start offering options, I think more and more people start to see the benefits of it. Ultimately, as much as I love my class of 49 guys, I'm really not going to be around forever. And there is this whole new generation that is coming up, and they're kind of pushing me into the things that they want. I mean, they're kind of dragging me. I'm hearing from them the things that they want to do, and they're driving some of the changes that we're doing. Um, and I have a player on Facebook as an example of how people are changing the culture themselves. Um, we don't do fundraising necessarily through Facebook. Our alumni um, office has a, a Facebook account. I'm still like, the last person on the list not to be on Facebook. Um, but Thursday before the conference, I all of a sudden saw this flurry of online gifts come in. And I started wondering, all right, this is, first I saw a couple. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is great. Some people are, are giving online. They get a notification to kind of keep in. And then a few too many came in for me to think that this was just a good day. I started going, all right, you know, I don't want to look at gift horse to match, but something has happened. I haven't pushed out an email, but all of a sudden I'm getting these gifts. And so after doing a little research and calling around and trying to figure out what happened, I realized that there was a volunteer in a reunion class, and he had put something on his Facebook page. And all of his friends all of a sudden went, I don't know how they need to go, but they do. That's still the mystery to me of Facebook. And all of a sudden these gifts started coming in. So I, I think our population was trying to give us the hint that we need to change a little bit, but we still do have to be mindful that there is a sub Eventually, we'll, we'll not quite be as much of a voice. Yeah. Oh, that was really long. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, you were talking about culture, problems with culture and how to change it. 
additional pain that we need to put into our training and make them more comfortable with it. And once they do it a few times, it's not quite so difficult, especially if we're pairing up people at comfort levels. Somebody who's a fifty dollar donor, I'm sure, is just never going to be comfortable getting on the phone asking for twenty five hundred dollars. Um, so that's you know why we spend the time that we do pairing people together. But we're going to talk about some training tools, and maybe that will help some. But I, I think. It, it's a little bit in that training and the good volunteers, three good volunteers, they, they start to get better at it. Related to that point, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, using people's skills and how I think there's an increasing number of ways for people to help out beyond just what's sort of in our traditional help with the auction, help with the annual fund, you know, sort of the, the list that I see as I look at the volunteer sign-up sheets on a lot of your uh, sites. Um, excuse a couple of examples here from colleges, but I thought they were small enough that they were uh, relevant. Carleton College, if you're not familiar, in deepest, darkest, Northfield, Minnesota, uh, has, <laughs> we love the, uh, the uh, gowns and cows, is that what they say in Northfield? College, colleges and contentment. I, I should really quote that accurately, shouldn't I? Uh -huh. Cows, colleges and contentment. Great place, I've been there. They've invited me to talk at their volunteer uh, training get together. Has one of the highest <coughs> participation rates every year in the country. It's always around 60% uh, participation. And here's one of the reasons why. This is a class celebrating its 25th anniversary on, on their webpage saying, come on, let's all pitch in uh, and make our annual fund gift. Here's another class. Uh, it's time for you to make your gift. We've hit 57% participation, uh, but we still have a ways to go. Here's a class uh, doing the thermometer route, help us hit our goal. And here's the beloved water tower in Northfield, Minnesota, right? Uh, is there really a frog on the top of the water? No, okay, this is not. The, the reason I put these up here, these weren't designed by the annual giving office or the communication <coughs> or the webmaster. These are the classes themselves putting this artwork on their website and managing the websites themselves. And so that ownership, this just sort of goes to the point of creating a culture where people are comfortable asking. Which of you are from the schools where everybody likes the fundraising? Raise your hands. Oh, no, right? Um, you know, I think part of success in annual giving is how we create this culture. And I go back to one of the points we started with, that, that peers and volunteers advocating for your goals and your programming is a powerful tool. And so the fact that it isn't the annual giving office at Carlton asking me to make my gift. It's my classmates saying, come on, we can do this. We can hit the goal this year. I think makes a big leap of a difference uh, in, in just trying to do this in the absence of a lot of volunteers that we're talking about. Here's a new species I haven't seen before, the YouTube volunteer. Anybody doing uh, anything with YouTube? This, this person isn't in the room, are they? Um, I haven't seen this before, but I'm gonna show you this. This is a two minute uh, video. Let's see if I can navigate this. And I'll even put my microphone on the screen. This annual fund campaign. Because this is a way that we can raise money and it goes directly to our kids into the classroom. I have two children at NCA right now. I've got Kaylee, my fifth grader, and I've got Brianna, my third grader. I have a two-year-old that will be starting preschool next year. I'm just like you. By now you should have already received your annual fund campaign packet, as well as a video message and an email from Scott Jones. The theme of this year's annual fund is just participate. I was really lucky to be able to get together with a group of parent leaders this summer, and we worked early into the school year to put together a campaign that people could be excited about. Last year, our parent participation level was about 
Currently, as I sit here and take this video, we're at 50%. We're halfway there. Our goal for this campaign is 100%. It's so easy to participate. You can write a check, send it into the school, or you can go onto the website and pledge an amount. What's nice is if you want to spread it out over several months, you can do it that way. I got involved with the annual fund campaign because I am passionate about NCA. I love to hear my girls come home and talk about what they've learned about the Bible, what they've learned about Jesus every day. I also love that they make decisions in their life based on what they're learning in NCA. Okay, we've got one week left to reach 100%. The quicker we reach 100%, the quicker that money goes directly into the classroom to benefit our children. Remember, just participate. Okay, don't be the last on your block to have a YouTube video. <laughs> Any comments on that? You know, it's, it's cool, isn't it? I like how they all had on their school study I've ever seen says that people go to the back of the magazine and read the class notes first, right? Yet they're a real time-consuming thing. So here's another school where the alumni themselves produce the class notes. So here's a couple of uh, kids from the same graduating class who are real slick with PowerPoint. So they put together their own class, class notes and they share it with the development office. And so here's Sean Baylor's wedding and all the guys that were in the bridal party at Sean Baylor's wedding. Here's Michael Bricker in the uh, treehouse he's building in the backyard for his kids. You know, all, something, a football that somebody is just taking and running with, that's something that I don't have to worry about. And, and I can feel good that not only are they doing this work on behalf of us, but their voice lends a different dynamic to it at the same time. Um, one last point about uh, using their skills is uh, I see schools now who are not just saying, which of our things do you want to help out with, but are also saying, you know, what other skills can you bring to the table? And you know, there may be a Twitter expert guru sitting out there at one of your schools that we just don't even know because who would have thought to ask about uh, somebody being a Twitter expert? So here's a school from San Francisco that I just saw that asks about all of our regular volunteer opportunities, but also says, uh, what other special skills or talents or resources uh, that you're willing to share might we be able to 
uh, utilized on our behalf. And I like how this is all web-based too, by the way. A lot of you have these downloadable PDF volunteer sign-up forms. Uh, jump online and, uh, and enjoy that experience. Okay, create a context. Is this you or is this me? Oh, it's me. You get to keep going. Yeah, sorry. Um, Another one of my favorite analogies is to talk about the wave in annual giving. And, and so part of what we want to talk about is, is teaching volunteers to be passionate and the use of volunteers to excite your other audiences. And uh, has everybody been, at the wave, been in a wave before in a big football game? And uh, you know, you're perfectly all happy sitting watching whatever game is going on. That's why you came there, right? And you look across the wave and some uh, kids, sometimes maybe drunk, are, are trying to start the wave. And you say, look at those uh, silly people. They're not going to get that going. And not more than five minutes goes by, right, when everybody in the place is getting up and doing the wave. And the two things I think are really interesting, um, you need to know the right time to get up, right, because you don't want to get up at the wrong time where you look stupid. And, and then it gets to a point where somebody says, you know, what's the matter with this guy? <laughs> There is something the matter with this guy. Um, you know, why isn't he getting up doing the wave himself? So what has gone from everybody watching the game now has become a whole social orientation, right? That I, I know when I'm supposed to get up and what's the matter with the people who don't get up. And I think that's a lot of what we're talking about. You know, it's okay to accept that you're dealing with people who were happy paying attention to something else before we came along. And whether it's volunteers or the people that we send out our volunteers to communicate with, this setting the context is, uh, is just part of what we do. It's, it's a powerful part of what we do. Um, Beaver Country Day School, anybody uh, there from here? I liked how, and a lot of the rest of you do this too, but you know, just the whole web presence of who our volunteers are, the very, all the different ways people can volunteer. Brown University sends out a publication every year announcing who next year's reunion class volunteers are going to be. There's a whole magazine just telling me who my class committee is going to be next year because they love showing off all these people who have raised their hand uh, and stepped forward. It's an important part of creating uh, that context. So to go back to kind of creating the culture and the training, which is um, where this all begins, because you know, successful volunteers really start with really good training. And that's one of the things in that top tier that we learned is that we needed to do better training. We needed to give them good tools. We really needed to make our volunteers feel like they're insiders passionate about the school, they're trying to help, um, and what can we do to make them feel a little special? We need to give them all the information that they need and more so that they can go out there and address those questions that are going to be asked, which is why we want them sitting in front of people. Um, they need to understand that impact of giving and why it's important to ask for that specific gift as we start training them, and why it's important that we do get that increase every year. We need to have them understand the value of that dollar. Need to have them understand the impact of even the gap. It always amazes me every year because we have a lot of repeat volunteers every year. We sit down, we do the training, and we'll mention, we talk heavily about the gap, you know, the difference between tuition revenue and the true cost of education. And every year those volunteers are like shocked. Oh, oh my gosh. Yet they hear it every year. But we need to keep enforcing it. We need to keep telling them about that. And they just really need to truly understand that impact of that impact, they need to own and, and feel like they're a part of that training themselves too. That we're not just always talking at them, but that they're a part of this too. Now, one of the things that we tried doing was, you know, even if we had to plant some of the people to say, you know, when we were in a discussion, why don't you talk about why it was really good?
got your work done early, how that prevents it, or maybe how you got your work done early. Hearing it from each other um, so that they're a part of it, they're, they're in their training, get them involved in it. Ask for their input too, because that's going to help us all build a stronger team. They know what motivated them to give. What was that last compelling thing that drew them from reading a letter or talking to somebody to actually going to pick up a checkbook? Again, it's that relationship that, you know, we're always passionate about the school, but which message was it that really got through to them? They know. They're talking to their peers. It's going to be the same for their peers as it was for them. Have them be a part of helping us craft our message that they will then go take out and send to others. Um, one thing that I did at another school that um, I was at was during our training, I asked them to watch their mail. I said, you know what? You get a lot of solicitations from a lot of different places. I'm not going to pretend like I'm the only one who solicits you. What is it about those things that you get that you really like that draws you to give? Or what is it about those things that are really awful that you just threw away and you would never think twice about it? You know, bring those in and, and let's look at it. You know, it kind of goes to the thought of, it always seems like a great idea when somebody else is doing it. And how often do your volunteers come to you anyway and be like, well, look what they're doing over here. How about we don't do that? Well, be proactive and ask them that in advance. Have them be a part of their training. You know, empower them with, this, with that part of it.
Um, Skype, did I, did I get that right? Skype? Yeah. You, you, you can do it without any cost. So, you know, there are a lot of things we can do that are really innovative that aren't going to put um, a drain on our office resources.
make about volunteer communications. And uh, I wrote about Phillips Exeter Academy in the first innovations book. I've told you about my, uh, my favorite trips to Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, we, we've already talked about St. Albans. I've heard a common theme from those places, which is try to keep yourselves in the position of being the deliverer of good news all the time. That, that when, it, when the staff lines up chasing volunteers, it, it doesn't help when they just start dodging your calls. Uh, and it, the communication breaks down. So whether it's um, uh, Exeter where they said, we just make it a rule to always call with some good news so they know that they should want to pick up the phone, to a place like Carlton where they said, get national annual giving chairs and give those people the job of being the ones who chase around the other volunteers so that the staff doesn't get cast in that role. And the same thing I think you're talking about with the decade uh, folks at St. Albans. That makes a lot of sense to me, that, that we ought to not be the police if we can avoid it, and if it just winds up in breaking a communication that wasn't broken before we recruited these people, then what have we accomplished uh, at the end of the day? Um, we're starting to get into the home stretch, but let's throw a couple more uh, examples at you. Here's the Penn Fund, and they update every week the, the latest top 10 results of how their class agents and their class uh, committees are doing, so the uh, biggest numbers of donors, the uh, biggest dollars raised. You know, the internet allows us to live in real time now, and when we're talking about creating that context, you know, use some of those internet tools uh, to your advantage. Um, Mercersburg, we talked a little bit about in the new book. One thing that I, I liked at Mercersburg was the effort that they made to try and tie back parent fundraising to the student experience. So um, I know this isn't right at Mercersburg. A lot of your places, you divide students into the reds or the blues or you know, these different groups. So the parent fundraising then becomes a competition between the reds and the blues. And part of the prize, if a parent uh, committee achieves their goal, is that their uh, student's class gets a pizza party or uh, tickets to a movie in, uh, in downtown Mercersburg. The, the connection of the, the two elements, it, sort of reinforcing the community, you know, you could probably go a little too far with that, especially in a Quaker uh, setting. But I, th I thought that was a nice uh, expression of the fact that fundraising is part of uh, what we do in this community. We want to talk just a little bit about reunions. Um, some of you maybe have established reunion programs and they went pretty well. Some of you maybe don't, and it just seems like an awfully long leap to get to an established reunion program. I wanted to share one story from uh, Encia, which is a school over in France, who's only been doing reunions for a couple of years now. And uh, so when you come to reunion at Encia, they now have the state of the school address from the dean of the school. And they're now giving out awards, uh, first of all, for the biggest participation from a class. And it now goes to a young class. Why? Because they don't know any better. They figure this is just what we're supposed to do for our reunion in Seattle. So they come down and they accept their trophy. And the older classes all sit there and they say, I can't believe that many people are making gifts in that class. So they're learning, right? What they're sitting there. They then give out the award for the total euros raised by a class. And it's an older class. Why? Because they have all the money. So they come down and they receive their award, and the younger people say, I can't believe people give that much money for their reunion at NCO. So they've only been doing reunions for a couple of years, but they're cross-pollinating the education to all their graduates and their volunteers are getting energized about it. So if reunion just seems like a really deep game for some of you to jump across, take heart that it is possible to accelerate um, the culture that you create with these audiences. And one more um, comment about faculty staff giving. If you uh, go through the exercise of faculty staff giving on your campus, this is a letter we featured in the uh, first annual giving 
uh, book, and this example really isn't about the letter, but after the book came out, a funny thing happened to me. I started receiving letters. So I got this letter, and this letter, and this letter. <laughs> but what caught my eye was this letter, which is the annual giving letter at Whitworth College. Uh, and, and this is Dave, the delivery man, who's asking you to join him with your gift to the, annual, the faculty and staff appeal at Whitworth College this year. And one of the points we wanted to make about volunteers is in their advocacy role, that a lot of you kind of stumble with faculty and staff appeals because you make them top-down uh, affairs and it becomes all about the headmaster or the head of the institution. You're inviting trouble, in my opinion, when you do that because you're, you know, sometimes faculty can be dissatisfied and we didn't get the raise we wanted or uh, we don't like the head of the institution. So you're giving them an opportunity to vote their opinion with your faculty and staff appeal. Everybody on campus knows who this guy is. And they all say, if he can make a gift, I ought to make a gift. And so just to underscore one more time the point about volunteers being advocates, this guy changes the game uh, for the faculty staff appeal at Woodward College. Okay, and then the last thing we want to make, we've got uh, three minutes, so we'll see how quick we go. Um, just the point about how your volunteers are really becoming the network. You know, we're coming out of a time where we can control all the messages, right? Everybody was reading my magazine. And they got the news that I wanted them to have. And now with Facebook and LinkedIn and everything else, you know, they're all talking to each other and that's the good news. The bad news is that we lose a little bit of the control over all the messaging that goes out. I think that could be a positive for our work with volunteers um, as long as you know, they're, they're on board advocating the, in the things that are important to us. Um, Emerson College is on trying to get their fingers around this. They, they did a reunion program and they, and they talked about how uh, you know, there's six degrees of separation between Emerson alumni around the world. And they even got to a point where they said, would you please fill out this list and tell us who your closest friends are that you went to Emerson with? Because they're trying to build that uh, network. You know, with Facebook these days, you almost don't even need uh, to go there anymore. So Upper Canada College uh, has their uh, Facebook page, which also connects to their LinkedIn page, which then connects to the YouTube page with videos there. So they're using all these social networking sites that their graduates are using as a way just to be seen and, and to uh, get their messages out in the place that their graduates are all communicating. Um, I don't think our alumni communities are going to go away, but I now visit schools who are starting alumni programs saying, why should I get my own alumni community when I can just use Facebook and MySpace and all the tools that are already out there. I didn't hear that a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, so this is a big thing we've been really wanting to do for our alumni is help with obviously job because we're in elementary school, but our you know, our first college students and uh, so has anyone been really using LinkedIn? You're saying like so parents will put their where they were putting Washington DC and share some information on their Facebook. Has anyone actually done that? Like is that you know kind of coming directly to your parents? Yeah. Um, you're calling my bluff on this. Anybody using LinkedIn? Yeah. As long as you create your network yourself, I mean, you have to like facilitate it. So as head development officer, I've gone out and set up like the friends or the groups or the, the fan pages, um, and then from there, if you reach out to your like top class agents and start that web, it'll it'll be flow. And then invite our parents to put all the agencies yeah. they work for. Blah blah blah. Oh, yes, <laughs> so. um, I want to show one more example, and then if anybody wants to ask a question, or a, a kind of, we're going to both be here, but I want to respect uh, the schedule run. Uh, we want to leave you with the Sidwell Friends Wiki. Yes. Wikipedia. Our Wiki. So this is this is our new idea. 
um, for the year. And um, what we did is we, we started this wiki, and I think actually kind of how we got to the wiki um, is a good volunteer issue too. Beginning of the year, we have all um, we had all the people who are leaders around our campus come in and present to us because it is so easy for us as development specialists to kind of hide in our corner and lose track a little bit of what's happening around campus. So we had the head of lower school, upper school, middle school, college counseling, admissions, everybody come in and talk to us and kind of give us their, their talking points. What do they want the community to know about what's going on with them? So we're, we just finished one of these sessions. It was with the head of our middle school. And she was talking about all these great things happening in the middle school, the initiatives that the teachers were doing, and the things they had up on their wikis, and blah, 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 blah. And we ended the session, and I went into Madeline's office. <laughs> What's a wiki? <laughs> so she went and she explained to me what this wiki is, and as we're talking about it and what they're used for, it occurred to us, oh, this might be a great tool to put in our volunteers' toolbox. So again, talking about changing culture, this isn't something that we're looking for any short-term results on. This is definitely a long-term look of, at something, and it's something to be used as a supplement to what we already do for them. So we don't want this in any way to replace any personal interaction that we have with our volunteers. Quite the opposite, we want this to actually make the personal interactions that we have with our volunteers better and about more important things. So instead of having to spend our time sending out the manuals and once again showing how you have to use the phone-a-thon card and all those things, we can spend our conversations really talking about the important things we need to talk about. What was happening with that family that you talked to and how's it going and the things that we really want to know on a different level. So Madeline is, is the brainchild behind creating all this. So kudos to her for getting this. This is definitely her, her child that she got up here and it was just launched on, on Thursday. So again, we're not looking for any short-term results or anything and actually this will probably get more and more use as we start new years with new volunteers who need something. Kind of the old tried and true volunteers like we talked about kind of have their way of doing things. But we wanted to provide something for them. So can I, am I able to, oh I am. So what we have here are just our resources for them. What we have housed are samples of the solicitations that we've already done. So if a volunteer wants to know what was the letter, what was said in that fall letter that went out before I make a call, they can go see the fall letter. Um, progress reports. They want to say in their phone call right before they get on the phone, our class is at 89% and we need to be at 95%. They can quickly go back and do a quick check and see where their class is in their progress report. Um, we try to post interesting articles. One article that we have up on here is, is giving Quakerly. So, you know, something to help them address some of the issues. Um, contact, there's even a discussion forum. I'm not sure how much that will get used, but it's going to be there. So if they want to talk with each other about, wow, I had this difficult call, does anybody have ideas how I can overcome this? They can talk with each other um, about those issues too. And you know, some of the resources here, if I can get over to the, your resources, okay. I mean, even things, they finished the phone call, now they need to figure out what to do. How is it I fill out my phone at phone card? They can go. Well, maybe not. All right, well, we have a sample of our phone phone card as a PDF on here with all written in parts as if they've just filled out the card so they can see it again. We want this just to be something useful for them so they can get their work done is what it is. It's just an additional tool for them. Hopefully, hopefully it'll, it'll work. Yes? Um, admit it, it's just like the Obama campaign. Say the word. <laughs> um, Oh, we have a question in the, in the, oh. How is your, is that, is that oh, I'm really glad you mentioned that. 
this is a password protected site. You can make wikis apparently that have no security to them. This is all completely password protected. Our volunteers got an invite to join it. Um, so I, I take a look now because once it goes away, uh, we have it password protected. But you can talk to Madeline who created it and um, she can explain more about it. But we do really want to be careful about the things that get out there. There's nothing really confidential on here, to be honest. A progress report with a class saying class of 2012 is at whatever percent. It's nothing really shocking. But we want that added layer of security on there anyway. Why? I'm sorry, I, I just, I'm trying to understand why, why would we want parents to feel comfortable. It's, and whenever you start talking about giving, people always get nervous what's out there. And so it, it's, it's at some point the image of making sure that not only do we know that we're doing the right thing, we can go that extra mile and really show that we're, we're conscious. And all friends that will be on MSNBC if they do. Um, <laughs> yeah, well that's. We need to go. Um, all these slides are going to be on the case website so you can get all everything you saw here that like. And if anybody has any more questions, we'll be here. Uh, let's see about <laughs>